0: This is Prolific, a collection of conversations with creative people about what compels them to make the things they do, and how they deal with fear, uncertainty, and doubt along the way. I'm Joseph Rooks, and my guest for this episode is the artist David Cohen, also known as Doodle Slice. A prolific illustrator, a frequent participant in Atlanta's Free Art Fridays movement— the organizer of the Atlanta Sketch Society, and a creative consultant who applies his perspectives on passion and practicality to help people find new paths within their work so that they can get the most enjoyment and purpose out of the things they spend their time on. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, so why don't you tell everybody that's going to be listening to this who you are, what your name is, and what your other name is, and sort of what you're all about.
1: Well, I am David Cohen, professionally known as Doodle Slice, and uh, I am an artist and poet and troublemaker and and, uh, creative consultant. But I try to make art that uh, makes people feel good and shares a little bit of love. A lot of people look at my art and think it's for kids, but what I'm secretly trying to do is make adults feel like kids. And, uh, you know, give them a chance to kind of reconnect with a little bit of innocence and, uh, that sense of wonder through artwork that is generally, um, very spontaneous and whimsical, a lot of animals and almost cartoon-like in the line work. Most of the poems that I write that go, some of it goes with the, um, drawings, some doesn't, but the book I just put out uh, is called Color Me With Hugs, and that's a collection of 44 drawings that you can color, and each drawing is paired with a poem that is inspired by the drawing, and so they kind of work together. Uh, So it's kid-friendly, it's all rhyming, so it's fun to read out loud, but there's some messages that I think an adult would appreciate about Coping with change, dealing with bullies, um, just friendship and and seeking uh, love in life.
0: Sort of the kind of things that are present in a lot of stories that we have when we're growing up, but then they sort of fade out or they disappear as we get older and everything becomes about action and entertainment and violence. And, you know, it's just something that's notably missing.
1: Yeah. Yeah and uh, you know all of these adult things that we're supposed to be attuned to and I think there's a lot of adults out there who they see something fun or cute or innocent and they have this initial reaction where they're drawn to it and they're excited they feel happy by it but then they feel like well that's not cool I you know I should be a little more hip than that. And so they want to put a little twist on it, you know, give uh, the bunny a razor blade in his hand or, you know, something that turns the innocent into something dark. And it's not that some of that stuff isn't fun, but I think sometimes people sacrifice making something beautiful because they're trying too hard to make it hip or ironic or...
0: Or to fit the way things have already been, right?
1: Yeah. You know, um, is it socially acceptable as an adult if I indulge in this feeling which is a little more innocent and a little more pure?
0: I feel like, you know, the nerds, of which I'm definitely one. Oh, yeah. Like, the nerds have sort of popularized whimsy and made whimsy and cuteness and fun and you know adventure and all these sort of lofty fun creative things made them popular or made them at least a lot more normal than they used to be so like and because of the internet it's also visible that an adult that maybe in the 80s would have felt like oh i need to be all business and all serious and stern and put on a, a straight face and you know They can look at all of us nerds and go, wow, they're having that much fun with this. Like, I can go down that rabbit hole a little bit and not feel weird about it.
1: And there's always, you know, the need to, well, for a lot of people to have some social proof so that they can feel like, oh, they're doing it, so it's okay for me to do it. Right. But in our culture, there's a lot of sort of throwback to comfort and nostalgia of youth. I mean, there's a reason why cupcake stores started popping up all over the place. People wanted that treat from when they were kids you know in in the 80s there were no cupcake stores <laughs> you know there might have be been a bakery and i think in part because you know now with so many concerns about peanut allergies and things for kids in schools the kids don't grow up with that association but the adults still have it and of course their cupcakes become a little distorted they're not you know simple little cupcakes your mom baked, but they're 10 inch high mountains of icing and 18 different toppings. And,
0: you know, because it's now
1: an extreme
0: uh, indulgence. They're like the caricature of the thing that we used to love.
1: Right. Right. And uh, so, but like, we're okay with that. But for a lot of people, then they get a little uncomfortable and a lot of artists who make work that like could easily not go into, like, like I think of juxtaposed magazine and, and a lot of things that come out of tattoo culture. And, and it's not to say that hard things don't happen in the world, but you know, there's a lot of skull art out there. <laughs> and I guess what I'm saying is I'm not against it, but I didn't feel like I needed to do that too.
0: Right.
1: I'd rather sort of try to be this voice for something a little bit more simple and um, a little bit more accessible to everyone. Even if, They may, you know, and if they look at it and they say, well, this is for kids, fine, but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it, too.
0: (laughs) Right. And you could also enjoy your kids enjoying it.
1: Yeah, that, too.
0: Or enjoy it with your kids.
1: In fact, that's like the thing I would love to see um, with the coloring book is parents and kids doing it together, you know, reading one of the poems out loud together and then coloring together. And, you know, I don't know too many books that uh, can straddle that divide.
0: Right. It reminds me a little bit of Pixar in some ways, actually, because in several of their movies, they don't shy away from the reality of things. Mm-hmm. They sort of invite adults into the same world as the kids for that experience. Yeah. You know, Ratatouille has the scene where they're talking about the rats getting trapped and Toy Story three has the fire scene and, there just there aren't enough things that are willing to go into a sort of a, a territory that adults and children can both inhabit at the same time and have a different experience.
1: And the funny thing is, you know, I'm old enough to have grown up with things like uh Rocky and Bullwinkle and Fractured Fairy Tales. And oh, there was a lot of humor for adults in them that was sailing over the kids' heads. It wasn't dirty humor, but it was a lot of topical stuff. And even though the cartoon totally worked at the kid level too. Right. I think you see more product hard directed towards, you know, one group or another.
0: For sure. So in your artwork, what are some of the recurring characters that you have in your drawings?
1: Well, I definitely have this, uh, I, I call them the loud bunny, which is also the, the hug at me, bro bunny he sort of become my mascot. And he started off just as I was drawing a ton of bunnies and, and I've been drawing, I've had bunnies in my art for easily 30 plus years, but uh, rabbits are quiet animals. <laughs> you know, If you've ever been around a real rabbit, uh, they don't make a lot of noise. They do have certain sounds. They'll make it certain times, but you don't really think, you know, besides like bugs, bunny, wisecracking you don't really think about bunnies making a lot of noise so i kind of thought what what would a bunny look like if it was shouting a little bunny cartoon character or something so i started drawing that uh, every once in a while and for a while i was making drawings and if i had something that i might have wanted to say about a you know a political issue of the moment or or what have you loud bunny would say that thing and then i would often subtitle it don't mess with loud bunny <laughs>
0: So would you say that Loud Bunny is sort of like a, like an avatar for yourself in your own little world of drawings?
1: That's where it started. And then it kind of started to take a life of its own. And that's when the Hug at Me Bro came in. So in cartoon history, there is a character called the Yellow Kid.
0: I remember. He was one of the very first uh, sort of syndicated comics.
1: One of the very first uh, characters to really catch hold. And when they printed in color, it would be in a yellow shirt. And instead of a word balloon, what the kid was saying was on his shirt. And so I had been thinking about this phrase that, like, a couple guys, when they're getting in a fight, say, Come at me, bro. And, and it had this aggressive subtext, and I wanted to kind of turn that into something positive. So I drew the bunny, and I put the yellow shirt on him, and I said, hug at me, bro. And for some reason, that one stuck with people a little bit more, became a little bit more memorable. So his expression is a bit more manic than my other bunnies. His arms are usually splayed out. His ears aren't nice and straight up and down, but bent and crooked in different directions. His mouth's wide open. And I started playing around with making some fun kind of pop culture references using that bunny just to give people another access to what I'm doing so uh, there is a version of uh, Wonder Woman that is based on that bunny and a version of Batgirl and a version of Captain America and Spider-Man and other than that I don't do a lot of what you would call fan art but I kind of like the idea of just you know having this weird character and recently I did a t-shirt for a, a thing with the Braves and Xfinity and uh, they let me take that bunny and put him in a Braves outfit. Oh, cool. And uh, instead of hugging me, bro, it says, bunt at me, bro.
0: <laughs> That's so good.
1: Yeah. And it was a really good time.
0: It sounds like less like fan art when they dress up like Wonder Woman or Superman and more like you're allowing your characters to kind of go and play in the world of cosplay and dressing like, it's like they themselves are dressing up.
1: Yeah. And it's not that I don't love comic books and that kind of stuff. I do. Um, Lord of the Rings and, you know, just I have my, you know, geek nerd stuff too, but I'm I'm just not that interested in trying to draw straight serious like you know wonder woman cover or daredevil coming across the street but making the bunisher instead of the punisher (laughs) that's fun to me and and like i said i think it gives some people who wouldn't otherwise notice my art a little bridge because they recognize that part and it might make them say well what else is this guy doing
0: that's really interesting so it's almost like you're saying hey i see you over there punisher fans I see you Superman fans. How did you get into this world of drawing bunnies and birds and rhinoceroses or rhinoceri or whatever it is?
1: You know, it evolved after a lot of different things. And so, like I said, I've been making art for a long time. And I guess my first really serious thinking about myself as I am an artist goes back to like 1986.
0: Hey, that's the year I was born. (laughs)
1: <laughs> thanks, I feel old now,
0: <laughs> but um, I think that's the second time I've done that to you,
1: yeah maybe <laughs> but but at any rate, I explored a lot of different stuff in sort of going through my art education and and I you know had gotten an m f a and and you know the thesis work was all abstract art and and exploring all of this postmodern theory and Coming out of that environment, I started moving into these animal imageries, and I was really beginning to pick up the animals in my painting probably in the early 90s. And um, Aesop's fables were certainly uh, an influence on me as a kid. Uh, I also remember we had this, like, National Geographic poster of African animals, and, and it was an illustrated poster, not photographed but it had like what you would think of as sort of marquee uh, jungle animals, like, you know, lions and rhinos and, you know, not, nothing too obscure, but um, those just kind of set in my head. So I was uh, doing a lot of things with tigers and zebras and giraffes and ostriches. And, but the bunnies were in there pretty early and there were always birds and, and birds kind of functioned in my art uh, often as a means of moving your eye around the page because uh, I'll do these drawings and they'll have four bunnies in them, but unless they're a loud bunny, they usually have pretty neutral expressions. Birds are what are making it look happy or solemn. The birds are what are moving your eye around the composition uh, with their gestures, but the bunnies just, they were there. Um, My ex, when I first met her, she had pet bunnies, so uh, I think the starting of of drawing them as opposed to painting them kind of came with trying to cheer her up when she was having a bad day. Let me draw some silly bunnies to put her in a better mood or draw, you know, four or five animals like... A cat standing on a chair that's being held up by a tortoise that's on the back of a bunny. You know, that these kinds of silly combinations. And it was in doing those quick, lighter drawings that I was starting to find I was getting at something emotionally that I wasn't getting from my more, quote-unquote, serious artwork.
0: Do you feel like the ability to do them quickly and to create a lot of them quickly was an element of that? Like you were able to sift through more? more quickly because of that?
1: I would say that a big part of that was just kind of leaning into my own sort of personal strengths and weaknesses. I tend to be heavy handed if left to my own devices. So
0: explain what that means a little bit.
1: Okay. So for example, um, when I would sit in a life drawing class, I would probably start off drawing too dark and be scrubbing in, you know, the form would be there. But, um, you know, it would be kind of overworked a little bit and, and too dark. And it just always seemed to happen
0: with me. When you say that, I'm curious because I was an art school student and what you're describing sounds a lot like some of the same things that I struggled with. Do you mean that because you were heavy handed, you maybe put too much down on the page too quickly and that made your drawings inflexible or do you mean something else?
1: Uh, Yes. I, I I mean that. And I mean, then because I had that inflexible basis, I would be struggling to work the drawing further. And the tendency would be always to add more because you could only, you know, things were too densely put in or you're working in charcoal where you couldn't really erase back out. Right. So, so at any rate, that, that had always kind of been a tendency of mine, even, you know, when I wasn't drawing, uh, from from life, and something just said to me. Okay, if this is going on, try try this as an exercise. Start drawing with markers, no pencil study. You know, so it wasn't the sort of traditional, like like you would approach from a comic book or illustration perspective, where you pencil and then you ink your pencil lines. Uh, it was just like go in directly with mar- with a you know a sharpie a marker and. With the theory being, if you overwork it, you're stuck with it. So it forced me to be very direct um, and learn to kind of like pull back before overcrowding the drawing.
0: Did you find that made you more deliberate?
1: Definitely. Um, I would also say my work has a lot of Asian influence. My father had a hobby... Uh, for a while when I was growing up, he used to do ikebana and moribana, which are Japanese flower arranging. And so he had some books on that. And compared to um, particularly what you would have found, uh, you know, in the seventies and eighties, under, you know, kind of Western flower arranging, like what you would see in a typical florist shop, these things look radically different. They were asymmetrical. They combined... Um, you know, broad shapes and thin lines and lines that, you know, when, when I say a line, in this case, it might be a twig or a branch, but it was something that captured space uh, with a linear thing encapsulating rather than filling in with flowers. Um, and it definitely influenced my compositional approach. I was also, as a kid, I was into martial arts, I was kind of interested in Zen Buddhism. Um, and so Sumie brush painting and uh, the Zen practice of what they call ensos, which is, uh, if you've ever seen, it's like a big ink O.
0: Like a circle. Like a, sometimes they're sort of incomplete and rough on the ends, right?
1: Right. And it's 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 about, you know, getting into the mental state and then making the single stroke that, you know, encapsulates the universe and, and, you know, some deliberately are open to let, you know, have this sort of passage between what you've encompassed and and what's outside of it. Um, But it's all about, hey, you put it down once and that's it. You don't rework it, you don't go over it. And so, you know, I was intrigued by that. I I think I saw um, in Matisse's work some of that, uh, particularly in his cut paper work, where he's using the scissor to create line, but because he's using colored paper, he's cutting color. And um, there's just this kind of simple directness um, and and as an approach to finding form, I, I even in my earlier days, experimented with doing some things where I was cutting into canvas and, and creating line that way. So these, you know, simple kind of doodle drawings that evolved out of all of this have this big backlog of study and art history and things that go into them. And um, it, it's kind of funny because I have a, a very good friend who's a terrific artist himself, uh, who when he first saw some of the pieces I was making for Free Art Friday and, and so forth around Atlanta, he was interested in what I was doing, but also thought because the line work is so direct that it was simple and he tried to make some drawings and, and I, this was all before I had met him in person so we finally do meet at like a barbecue and he's kind of sheepishly telling me um, that he was interested in my drawings and he wanted to kind of make some like that uh, to get a feel for it. And uh, I guess he was a little embarrassed that like, you know, he was saying he was trying to copy what I was doing, but I wasn't taking it as copying. I was more like, you know, we're artists. We learn from each other.
0: Right. That's interesting because, When I was in art school, they had us copy different—you know—they had us copy master painters and master illustrators, right—to try to understand the language of their movements and build a vocabulary for ourselves. And it wasn't looked at as like stealing; it was just a a way for us to learn movement.
1: It's a teaching tool. But so he was doing that with my work, but he said that he tried it and he couldn't make it work. <laughs> and I said that's the best compliment ever uh because you know here's a, a guy who draws terrifically and he uh he makes a character called Cthulhu Brown which is a merging of Cthulhu and Charlie Brown um and it's awesome and and you know he's got a great sense of humor in his work and everything
0: is he in Atlanta as well yeah who is this
1: uh do it do it league is his handle um uh, Name's Mario. He's just an awesome guy.
0: There's a lot of really interesting characters in the art scene in Atlanta. It was definitely one of my favorite things about living there.
1: Oh, yeah. But what he wasn't sort of able to just kind of get from just looking at the line work was what was going on compositionally in them and and the balance, even though it was in a sort of simple format. And I think that's something that. You know, I've only come to because I've just been doing this so long and have, you know, all of those weird influences that trickle in, even if I'm not thinking about them in the moment.
0: So you have a few interesting little offshoots of the, do- the doodles that you do. You've got your coloring book that you already talked about. And then you also do art for Free Art Fridays. Talk a little bit about what that is.
1: Free Art Friday is this really cool thing. Um, it, it happens in some other cities, but Atlanta is actually one of the like major cities for this.
0: I thought it happened everywhere, and when I moved away, I was actually pretty disappointed to find out that it doesn't.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, there's like a, a Free Art LA and a Free Art New York, but they're just not as big a community. But what it is, the best way to think about it is kind of like a treasure hunt. Artists hide little bits of art and it's not always little, (laughs) but generally, you know, people are making smaller art. Maybe they, um, a lot of people will like stick a magnet on the back. So it's easy to, you know, put the piece of art on a fridge or whatever. Um, but it's usually, well, I'd say free art Friday, uh, makers kind of fall into two categories. There are those, who have an art background and there are those who don't. And uh, some of the latter, their only creative outlet is making free art Friday pieces. And, and a lot of those started because they were free art Friday collectors um, who felt like this opened the door to letting them explore some creativity and wanting to give back, which I think is just awesome.
0: So how does the actual finding of the artwork
1: so, um, say I make a little, uh, tile or something that I paint on a stick, a magnet on the back, I'll hide it somewhere and, um, go downtown or, uh, into a neighborhood, like little five points or something, stick it on a sign, stick it behind a mailbox, who knows. And I'll take a photo and post that on Instagram, um, uh, and hashtag it F-A-F-A-T-L, which is free art Friday, Atlanta, um, and it used to, when it first got to start, happened pretty much just on like one Friday a month. But nowadays you might find someone dropping a piece any day of the week. Um, and, and that's partly just a testament to how many people are doing it here in Atlanta. Uh, but if you're, if you're in the know, you can follow that hashtag and, um, you know, people – there are some people who try to collect every different artist who does it um there's certain artists whose pieces are um very in demand and if they drop art it's not usually on the street very long <laughs> uh and uh but it's also been great to connect with other artists through doing it and and get to know and see what some other people are doing um and so there's a real sense of fellowship i guess in that community, which is pretty awesome. Uh, yeah. So the free art Friday, um, you know, they if you look at the hashtag FAFATL, you'll see there's like 15,000 posts or more. I, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, and you figure that the, the tag is getting used when someone drops the art. And hopefully when someone finds it, the, they do the artist the courtesy of taking a picture and posting that they found it. Um, that's ideal not everybody does it not everybody knows to do it
0: some people probably find the pieces without ever even know, knowing that it's a thing do do most of the little notes about it
1: yeah usually people will say something on the back it, you know they'll have their instagram handle uh, or their twitter handle and the hashtag some people write more elaborate instructions um for a while I had a sticker I used to put on the back of them that kind of gave a little bit more explanation, you know, depending on my mood <laughs> or how big the piece is. Uh, Cause you know, sometimes you do something real small, there's not much room, but, but definitely there've been some people who uh, they used to just go out and try and find the, the stuff and it inspired them to become a maker. And that's, I just think really neat.
0: I think that's really interesting. And since it's such a small sort of manageable thing for a lot of them, it's not as if they're, you know, saying to all their friends, I'm going to write a book or, you know, I'm going to go and star in a movie. It's like a small achievable thing that gets people into the habit of creating something.
1: Right. And it also does this neat thing with the city in that I've gone to corners of the city I never would have gone to before to hide a piece of art. And uh, I've also gotten to know a bunch of artists who, you know, don't really, like, they're not in the gallery scene or or anything like that. They're more street artists that just kind of keep a low profile. Uh, So, you know how you might be in a city and you roll up on a stop sign and it's got a bunch of stickers on it? Right. Well, in Atlanta, I know you know, if I run into one of those stop signs, I know like 50% of the stickers who, who the artists are.
0: (laughs) That's amazing.
1: And it makes you feel like you're, you know, you're an insider. You're, you're part of, uh, you know, you have an insight into something going on into the city that not everybody has.
0: Yeah. There's a real sense of community around it. Yeah. you also do a meetup for sketching, don't you?
1: Yeah. Uh, so we're getting on, uh, three and a half years now. Um, it's called the Atlanta Sketch Society, and we meet at Trackside Tavern, which is a bar in Decatur every Wednesday. And uh, we get together around 8 o'clock, usually there till around 11, give or take. And it's meant to be deliberately very low-key. So um, you have to be old enough to drink because it's a bar. Uh, and, you know, the card car and throw you out if you're... Too young, but otherwise, come in, order yourself a beer, get some deep, uh, you know, they have a, a decent menu for bar food, and uh, um, bring your sketchbook or whatever you're working on, and just hang out. And we've got uh, people who come from lots of different types of art backgrounds, got uh, some people who are more. From the illustration world some are more from the comic book world uh some people who um they do a lot of like craft uh type work so they're sketching ideas for craft projects uh we've got a woman who comes in uh, fairly often she's a tattooist and uh often is you know working on some idea for some elaborate tattoo um we've got my funny bunnies. Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, it's great because you get, you know, some insight in some different approaches. Um, Recently, we've been having someone come who her main art is, um, she's a sculpture uh, artist who works with ceramics a lot. Uh, But, you know, she comes, she sketches, she kind of works on her ideas. And, You know, you can hang out and talk or you can, you know, get yourself in a booth by yourself and just draw quietly, but you're around other artists, you're around other people who are supportive Um, and we're, we don't care if you've been drawing for two weeks or 20 years, you know, just come on in.
0: That's really awesome. It gives people who want to draw or just want to try drawing a sort of a built-in community that they can just step into you have people just drop in very often for the first time and hang out and have no idea what they're getting into, but they just show up.
1: Um, you know, not as much. Uh, what we tend to have is we have some regulars who come, you know, and then we have regular irregulars who are, you know, people who will come for a few weeks in a row and then not be able to come for a month. And then they come for a few weeks in a row. Um, but yeah, we'll occasionally run into someone or someone who happens to be an artist didn't know it was going on, but they just came in for a drink and they're like, Hey, what's this? Um, you know, I also am always happy to have people from other disciplines if they want to hang out. Um, if they sculpt or do photography or write poetry, whatever. Um, you know, we, I, I like the sort of salon idea. Um, But, uh, in terms of, you know, beginners sometimes feel a little intimidated, but we don't want them to, we want them to feel welcome. But what I do say is we're not there to be your teacher. You got a question, ask it, but, uh, you know, just sort of understand that it's not a classroom. (laughs) So we're not giving them lesson.
0: Gotcha. So it's it's less meetup.com speech, kind of like talk and workshop environment and more like just feeling like the bar, but you're drawing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, come in, uh, we're kind of assuming you're self-directed. I, I always include a prompt in the announcement in case like someone's stuck for an idea. I don't know what to draw. So, you know, I have some silly prompt or whatever. Um, sometimes when we've had a larger group, we've done like a group drawing or, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with exquisite corpse, as uh, a, Exercise.
0: I'm not. What is that?
1: You cover most of the drawing. Someone draws on the uncovered part, and then you um, like slide the part over and hide the part. So it's usually done by folding the paper.
0: So that's sort of like the storytelling thing where you write several lines, and then you fold it. Fold it so you can only see the last line, and then you keep writing.
1: Exactly. It's an old data exercise, and uh, so you end up with this like nobody knows what the final drawing is going to look like and uh, they're fun, you know? Um, But, uh, you know, generally speaking, you know, everyone's kind of got their own project they're working on something they have in mind. Um, We have one lady actually uh, who, who almost when she comes, she almost always uses the prompt to kind of inspire something. But, she's sort of the exception. Most, most folks just sort of have their own idea and what they're working on. Um, and everyone's always very interested to see what other people do. Um, so, you know, if you want to get some feedback, uh, you're, you know, it's definitely a great thing to come in and say, Hey, you know, do you mind taking a look? Uh, but, you know, if you're shy about your drawing, you don't have to show it to anybody. <laughs> and and we get that, too. Sometimes people come in and they're just kind of like, I just want to be in here where the vibe is good. But, you know, I'm not really looking for, um, you know, critique or anything. So
0: Right. Um, a few years ago, on my birthday, actually, I came to your exhibit where you had more than a thousand drawings on display.
1: Yeah. Can you believe that's like four years ago.
0: That was crazy. It's crazy that it, the grandiosity, the scale of the exhibit was crazy. And then the fact that it was four years ago is also really crazy. What made you want to do that?
1: Well, it kind of grew out of um, that transition period where I was starting to accept the um, idea of making these simpler drawings rather than these kind of more grandiose Uh, paintings and so forth. And um, I was making a lot of drawings. I was starting to put them out on um, like Facebook and Instagram. Uh, And I just decided, okay, I need to sort of test myself and see if this is a serious thing for me. And so I just set a goal of, uh, I think it was April 15th of uh, 2012 that I said, By that date, I want to do a 1,000 drawings. And I did. And I kept going. And so I started to have quite the pileup of
0: drawings. Was there ever any doubt that it was a serious thing for you? Was there a time where it was just, you know, you were self-critical or self-doubtful or you just weren't really sure what you wanted to do with it? Well,
1: the way I'll answer that is this. I am a person who in my life has started so many projects that I didn't finish. Um, I just, ever since I was a kid, like, you know, my mind would be racing off to 10 new things. And so I would start off with some grand ambition of an idea or a design or a project, uh, get a little bit along the way, but then get excited about something new. And the other thing would sort of fade away. And, um, so, Having sort of moved from, uh, you know, canvases and paints and paintbrushes and things that seemed serious in an art sort of vein to drawing on index cards and and uh, doing the subject matter, which, you know, was very light and inviting and sentimental. Um, I just kind of felt compelled to sort of check myself and I figured if I can do a thousand, um, by a deadline, then, you know, so, so it wasn't, wasn't that I doubted that I would because I'd never doubted any of those projects. But the reality was I, there were a lot of projects I didn't finish. So I knew if I crossed that deadline, it was for real. And, uh, especially since I reached it and I wasn't like, oh, you know, throw in the towel. Now I don't want to do any more of these kind of drawings. I wasn't sick of them. I was, you know, jazzed on them. So the, the final count, uh, for the show was like 1100, but that was called from, uh, you know, probably about four or 5,000 drawings.
0: That is wild. I didn't know that. What's your relationship to quitting things? are you okay quitting something if you hit a point where you just know it's not doing something for you or do you get disappointed? Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, there's probably, I, I, I'm probably guilty of not quitting things soon enough. I, you know, I tend to sort of keep the idea lingering, even if I'm not working on it, you know, so you don't clear the mental space. Um, you know, it's kind of still hanging on. Um, which, which isn't really like an approach I'd recommend. Um, but then there's other stuff where I know for sure I'm going to get back to it. I just don't know when it might be five years. It might be 10 years. It might be next week. Um, and, uh, I, I think a lot of artists and, and people who tinker with things, you know, wood shops and, you know, whatever, you know, your sort of creative outlet can get that where they're like, you know, say you're a woodworker and you're, Stumble across like here's a cool kind of piece of figured maple, and I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I'm going to stick it on a shelf, and someday the right project's going to come along, and I'm, you know, and and if you throw it out for some reason, sure enough, like you know, two months later you'll be like, ah, oh, I, I now know what to do with that thing. So,
0: I feel like a lot of people are afraid of behaviors like that getting labeled as uh, puttering or hoarding or being lazy, or they're just afraid of being criticized for not finishing things.
1: Yeah. And you know, um, it happens and I've certainly been criticized for it.
0: Does it matter? Do you care if you're criticized for that? Or do you just know that it's kind of part of the process?
1: You know, I care about the friction it creates. I don't love that, but, uh, you know, I've just come to embrace, you know, sort of a Popeye philosophy when it comes to that. I am what I am. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, in fact, uh, it's a line I've used before. I say, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's how I am. Um, and, and going in, I, I have lots of projects going at once. I have lots of ideas and, um, You know, not all of them make it to the finish line, and some just have to find their own time. Um, Today, I'm working on some things with some digital art that I create. And, um, you know, right around the same time I was hanging uh, the Big Thousand Drawing show, I was making a lot of these where I take uh, vintage photos and I put them through just a lot of different uh, digital processing with s- some of it involves using apps that generate shapes and forms based on, you know, kind of like a filter um, and then, you know, some direct manipulation, uh, adjusting colors and contrasts and things. Um, so it's a combination of curating, cropping, and playing and tw- twiddling knobs. But it's it's a very different mode of creating and it lets me express, um, you know, some different ideas than the manual work does. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it's like a nice counterpoint to that. And just recently I, I reposted, you know, uh, about eight or nine of them that I had done a while ago with one or two that I've done recently. And I, I, I guess because I posted a bunch at once, all of a sudden I got like 150 comments on the post and um, it, you know, it reminded me about what I liked about them. So today I'm uh, playing with an idea of, of a, a different way to present one of these drawings and, and, or I call it a drawing, but it's it's really more of a, a digital entity and uh, what I want to do is take it and cut the shapes out uh, and present them in a kind of dimensional way, probably not doing a good job of explaining it. But, so today I'm not drawing my bunnies, (laughs) but that doesn't mean tomorrow I won't be. And at the same time, I've got like two more book ideas that I'm working on and pushing forward. Um, So, you know, all the productivity gurus say, pick one thing and see it through it doesn't work for me. I need the, the mind shifting to, uh, you know, explore some other things so I can kind of come back to the one thing and get it forward. But at the same time, I'm always at the risk of, you know, going too far down the tributaries and never getting back to that earlier branch. That's my struggle, um, kind of in a nutshell. But but when I've, whenever I've tried to bear down and say, I'm only doing this one thing and I'm going to see it through, I, I get into a procrastination mode.
0: Well, because that's friction with yourself. Right. You know, you're kind of confronting yourself with something that doesn't really fit you. I think that productivity advice is usually aimed at the people who haven't really tried hard enough at anything to know what they want to do. Like your one thing is probably just being you because you've tasted enough things in life now that you know how you operate.
1: Yeah. And I guess that's a little bit comes with age, <laughs> but um, it, it it's definitely, you know, it's not ideal. I, I you know, I'll be the first to say it. It, it from like a accomplishing things point of view. It would definitely be better to say, okay, there's a color me with hugs Uh, volume one out there, I've got two thirds of the drawings for color me with hugs, volume two, knuckle down and write some more poems and finish those other drawings and get that second book out. But it just doesn't work that way. Uh, and when I say just, I mean, I don't function that way. Um, but you know, knocking out some other designs, maybe doing a different book, uh, helps me make general progress, but I'm still confident I'll get volume two out. (laughs) It's just,
0: it's just, you care about the process more than you care about the timeline. Yeah. And it's just a difference in priorities. You know, productivity to me feels like it's less about getting things done quickly or getting specific things done quickly and more about just trying to be the best operator of yourself that you can be. And I think a lot of people misinterpret it as checking items off, like checking off more to do items or getting more done or getting the smartest or most business savvy things done. When really you just have to figure out a way of working that creates the kind of life you want to live. And, and that's the thing,
1: but you know, people buy into what's, you know, this conventional wisdom and there's a lot of gurus peddling it, you know? Um, and, and I I, I think that's the big question that people need to ask is I got nothing against like, you know, go to the self-help section and pick some things, but then make a decision if that's working for you because they're telling, ultimately they're telling you what worked for them, (laughs) you know, um, and a lot of us are driven by different drivers and, uh, you know, psychologically, you know, when you talk about different behaviors, we have, um, you know, certain things that we respond to, we have different things that motivate us. So, you know, what may work for one person um, and, you know, may just be a misery to the next. And, uh, but of course, you know, that's, if someone's selling a book on how to do something, (laughs) you know,
0: that's not the most profitable or easy to sell advice (laughs) to someone who doesn't know that they need to hear that.
1: And you know, the same thing happens with, uh, you know, business success books is you get some, you know, CEO or some company founder writing a book and they're telling about what worked for them. Um, but they don't generally dwell on, Hey, Here's where some of the things about our time when we were doing this is different from your time now or, you know, um, the context, uh, often the degree to which luck played a factor is left out. And that's not to mitigate anyone's hard work. But luck is often a factor, too, you know.
0: Luck and circumstances and context, they all sort of change the outcomes of how different pieces of advice play out
1: people you happen to meet at the right time. And, and yeah, you know, you have to be sort of ready to act when the right person comes along or the right opportunity.
0: What's that equation though? Luck is where preparation meets opportunity or something like that.
1: Right. Right. Um, but it's still luck. <laughs> you know? And uh, you know, I, I guess that's the sort of alpha, you know, guru expert point of view is that, you know, there is no such thing as locker. You know, one of the titles that uh, really bugs me a lot um, and it comes from the sales world is this hope is not a strategy and it's a projecting title, you know, and the intention is to say, don't rely on hope and prepare, but, but the implication is, That that is what you're doing. And it somehow is becomes interpreted as saying hope is a bad thing. And it's like, you can hope for a good outcome and still be realistic about what you need to do to affect that outcome. (laughs) And to work towards that outcome.
0: You can have a whole lot of hope about something and then actually take action to show that you actually do hope for it and care about it and that it's a priority.
1: (laughs) So you know, it becomes a sort of glib line instead of something that's nuanced. But, you know, we live in an age of short glib lines.
0: That sounds a little like um, it's coming from your experience in like creativity consulting and things like that. What does that part of your life look like and what kinds of work do you do and what kinds of people do you do it for?
1: I have helped, um, you know, like some creative professionals to get through some periods where they were blocked, um, kind of confused about how to manage their business um, because they were really kind of torn in different directions about where they wanted to go. Um, So, for instance, I had a photographer I was doing some work with who he did some corporate photography. He did some fine art photography. He also did weddings and so forth. And we got into—I uh, have this framework I call the whole brand thinking framework—and I took him through that process, which is which is kind of like a coaching slash interviewing process. Uh, and we dig into things from ten different points of view, with the idea of, of really trying to understand what are some of the patterns and building blocks by which this person approaches the world? And what was uncovered was one of the reasons why he was attracted to doing wedding photography was he grew up in a church and uh, he, you know, he had a lot of emotional foundation uh, because his father was a minister and that was, you know, just part of his world. Um, but he liked to get really creative with his shots and, uh, loved to kind of like get into the church, uh, the week earlier and plan where he was going to be. And, and so he could get really creative and, um,
0: Were these all thoughts that he uncovered through working with you that he wasn't?
1: Yeah, there were, there were a lot of stuff that he sort of, you know, he might've had an intuitive sense, but didn't have a vocabulary for discussing
0: he had a feeling but he hadn't articulated it
1: right and so he uh but but he was feeling frustrated and burnt out doing weddings because he he felt compelled by the external definition of a wedding photographer like i have to you know they hired me so i have to be the one shooting you know, all the bridesmaids lined up and all the groomsmen lined up and all these sort of standard shots that you have to get. So it was this weird cycle. People saw his blog, loved his more creative shots, wanted them for their wedding because of that. But he felt he couldn't do those uh, to the level of his ability because, you know, he was the head barber and they were hiring him. So I said, just change your pitch. You know, when, when they come in to meet, explain. My assistant's going to take those shots. I'm going to check in on them, on them to make sure everything's cool. But they're doing that so I can do, you know, these sexy shots and these, you know, weird angles and, and capture the light that I've studied that happens in that venue so that I can give, give you those memories that you want.
0: The stuff nobody else can give them.
1: And he he started doing that. and It was the best thing in the world. He calls me up uh, a couple weeks later. He says, I love doing weddings again.
0: That's amazing.
1: And it was mostly his own limitations. And they came from the external definition of what a wedding photographer was. Not listening to what his internal definition of what it was.
0: That's amazing. The process that you walked through with him... It has 10 points, you said. How did you come up with that? Is that just sort of you wrote it down based on your own thinking?
1: Well, uh, I definitely drew upon some sources. So uh, I have this weird other life, which we haven't talked about too much, which is my startup experience. So uh, I came to Atlanta working for a startup. I was kind of burnt out on some things going on in the Baltimore art world and had gotten involved in doing some web design very early. Uh, so it was like 1994, 95, doing some web stuff. Um, that led me to doing some work with a small startup uh, up there and they got bought. So I had been a freelancer for them. About a month before they got bought, they hired me on full time and then they said, Your job's now in Atlanta. <laughs> And so, <clears throat> excuse me, I came down here and, um, I got, you know, I kind of saw all of this crazy dynamics of the tech world and, uh, me and a friend I had made down here, we decided to start our own company and it was in that kind of go, go early internet bubble, uh, time frame. So we're now like, you know, 98, 99. So we did that, we started a company, um, we went through, we, we were basically farming out programmers to another company uh, you know, on a consulting basis while funneling the money we were making into R&D. Uh, we came up with a concept we thought had some legs, which was, um, believe it or not, about taking the internet content of the day to the mobile devices of the day, which were a lot more primitive than what you got in your hand right now.
0: Are we talking like BlackBerry or are we talking like flip phone that could display a little bit of text?
1: Early WAP enabled phones, alphanumeric uh, pagers, uh, the Palm seven, which had this big clunky antenna you could pop up. um, That those were some of the first devices we were sending content to. So if you can imagine even on the smaller screens of, you know, 1999, trying to chop up a page of web content to go out 256 characters at a time and keep sessions straight. You know, there was a lot of technical things going
0: on. Responsive design was not a thing. (laughs)
1: Uh, I, you know, my role evolved a lot from being a, like a uh, hands-on, I was doing, you know, web and UI for the startup, but I was also one of the founders and co-writer of the business plan and involved in fundraising and so forth. And as we grew and added more people, because we ended up raising a fair amount of money, um, uh, my role kept sort of moving in the kind of strategic marketing and branding direction. And um, PS, dot-com bubble bursts, we got clobbered because we weren't a dot-com business model, but all of our customers were. <laughs> so suddenly uh, everyone we were doing business with or trying to do business with was out of business, you know, and uh, it was a really interesting time. Um, but it, it had taught me that, or I guess I observed that when everyone had a good clear sense of what, the brand story was, uh, things seemed to be clicking, and morale was good, and there was clarity about what people were doing and why, and when things were kind of a mess and everyone's pointing fingers at each other, no two people seemed to have the same idea of what the overall story
0: was. That's really interesting. I feel like that's sort of hinting at some of the hidden benefits of branding, where it's like, oh, instead of us looking at each other and trying to figure out what to do, we can look at the brand and the brand sort of tells us what to do. And it's our guiding light. Right. Right. And it's,
1: you know, it's easier for an individual to say, hey, these are my parameters. As an organization, it can get, you know, with a lot of, you know, you got investors have one idea, you got a CEO has got another idea, you've got, you know, people pulling in different directions. So, but, but but that started to form my basis. So I wanted to get a little bit more knowledgeable uh, on the subject. So I started reading a lot of books on consumer branding and uh, definitely there were a few um, you know, Paul Arden's books uh, were very influential on me. Um, uh, there's a, a book, uh, I'm blanking on the author's name, uh, but it was called Primal Branding. And um those started to steer me towards this framework idea. Uh, but they were organized around consumer brands and, and, you know, the kind of the motion of a consumer brand is to say, well, let's let's focus group it and let's find out what the market is saying and use that to understand how we're, we're being understood. And, (laughs) um, but when you start to get into more b2b and personal branding it has a lot more to do with what i would call operational aptitude what are you capable of doing and you can pick a point out there of what you want to be able to do but your your kind of the steps you take to get there are going to be very much governed by what what are you capable of doing today um and so I adjusted and added some questions or, you know, points to the framework that were based on some of those considerations. So trying to take into a a sense of the kind of context you're creating for the brand.
0: So it's basically a self-awareness tool. What are some of the questions that you might ask a person you're working with?
1: Well, uh, like one of my favorites is talking about origin story. Um, so, uh, and the the example that I love is, is kind of the Spider-Man, Peter Parker thing where he gets bit by the spider and he gets his powers but he doesn't really become Spider-Man until the other event which is his uncle getting shot and he realizes his responsibility um, that would have prevented that uh, incident happening and that's what really takes them from being basically a super strong jerk to being a hero. Um, so, you know, I, I'll ask people questions about when do they feel they sort of came into, you know, the skill sets they have? When did they sort of start to shape who they are and, and, you know, were there any defining incidents? You know, did it happen over time? And, and a lot of this is done by asking a lot of questions a lot of different ways. So I'm listening for the commonalities in their responses. So, you know, we might spend a couple of hours on the topic, um, but we're also sneaking in other topics, too, So, by the time we've done, you know, three or four of these sessions, we've hit all of these 10 points several times from different directions. And that's how I get past sort of the ego barriers that people, they don't even realize they're putting up.
0: A hundred percent. It's the best trick in the world.
1: You ask a question where they're consistent with the answers, you start to have a little bit more reliability and it starts to uncover... And, and so, you know, I, I kind of say, like, I, I create that funhouse mirror that shows you it's, – it's you, but a little bit shaped towards, you know, an idealized you that you want to head towards. But it's not coming from somewhere else. It's not someone else's definition. It is you. But we're taking away some of the extraneous stuff and some of the stuff you're mired in now. Because my feeling is, particularly for small businesses – Individuals that are, you know, maybe they're an artist, maybe they're, uh, you know, a creative uh, discipline, maybe they're just a, you know, a personality brand in their business. They have some assistance, but they're the meat of, of the offering. Um, their brand flexibility is driven a lot by their own personal energy and their personal choices about what they can and can't go after and so they are the most susceptible to the dangers of those external shoulds like like that photographer we talked about he had all the talent he had the drive he he was personable he could land clients but he was miserable because he was doing the stock definition instead of really trying to understand where his strengths were and his motivations were and uh as we got that picture clearer, it became easier to talk about him. It became easier to build his messaging. It became easier for him to just have a vocabulary when someone says, "Well, why do you do it that way?" He had an answer instead of a you know an intuition that is easy to doubt when you when you' got other people giving you other definitions or is easy to doubt when you're faced with an opportunity that comes along that seems like well I could make some money doing that but you don't know why you're having a nervousness about it well if you go through this type of process then you can say well that's because it's taking me too far away from my brand and um it's going to lead me towards work I don't want to get
0: i feel like that's something that even individuals that feel like they don't need a personal brand probably will relate to just because there are a lot of people that sort of slid into college and slid into their jobs and their careers without really considering where they were going or what the right thing was. And now they're just sitting with that nervous energy about, you know, why am I doing this?
1: And I wish I could find a better term than personal brand. Uh, But to me it's the most accurate, but it's also mired with a lot of junk. Uh, It's, you know, There's a lot of people who do personal branding and it's just an exercise in hype. And it's peddled a lot by social media experts who are very good at selling social media development programs for people who are social media experts. (laughs) And I say that not intending to be facetious. It's what they do. That's what they sell.
0: It's true. It's factually accurate.
1: And so... You can go into any platform and there's, you know, someone selling how to be good at that platform. That doesn't mean that those techniques will be good for your business on that platform.
0: Especially the ones that are just feeding ego and feeding the self-serving nature of it. Right.
1: So if you want to be like a Twitter guru, uh, then, you know, looking at what the number one Twitter guru tells you to do is probably a good answer. But if you're looking to sell, uh, you know, consulting services for, you know, mid-level technology businesses, those techniques won't work for you. In fact, they may be harmful to you right. um, because they're not taking into account what your audience really wants, the type of trust development they need, um, the types of energies you bring um one of the things I like to talk about sometimes when I've given talks before is spamming. Now, everyone hates spammers, so why do people spam? Spamming works. But to be successful at being a spammer, you have to be prepared to do things a certain way. You have to work in a very high volume. You have to have something very transactional that you know, it's sell once and forget it. You're not building long-term relationships. Um And you have to be mobile. You have to like make a lot of noise here and then get out because you're going to generate a lot of ill will wherever you go. So, you you know, you send a million emails out, you'll get someone responding. Um, But are you monetized to, to make that work? Are you energetically prepared to do that day after day after day? And if the answer is no, then don't be a spammer because you're not prepared to operate like a successful one. Don't take the techniques of someone who is doing something that isn't built for your business, for your drivers, for your personality, you know, and expect it to be successful for you because it's going to break either because you're miserable, you hate it, you don't want to do it, Or it's not going to fit your business or it's going to make enemies of the people you're trying to build trust with, or you just don't have the resources to do it at the level that it becomes successful.
0: Yeah, I think there's a really interesting line that you have to be mindful of because I've certainly, as as a creative services business owner, there have been times where I've sent a lot of emails to a lot of people that I wanted to connect with, that I wanted real relationships with, that I wanted to work with. And an outsider might look at what I was doing and say, oh, you're just spamming a bunch of people. But to me, because it wasn't coming from a place of ego, it wasn't coming from a place of desperation. It was just coming from a real heartfelt place of, I looked at a bunch of work because I spend a lot of time on the internet and I see everything that everybody's making and I want to know who's behind all of it. I see that. I want a relationship with them. I want to create a situation. Where my clients and their customers are both helped by me entering the picture. And like that doesn't feel like spam because I'm trying to provide actual value.
1: And that's the thing is that alignment makes all the difference. And and humans are remarkable at sensing that genuineness behind the message. You know, how many times have you gotten an email where someone said, oh, I was looking at your profile, and you know darn well they weren't looking at your profile. Right. You know, um, they're trying to trick you with language into believing and a level of engagement when you know it's a form letter.
0: Hello there, dollar sign, first underscore name, comma. I was checking your website, dollar sign... Website underscore URL.
1: Yeah, and even without those obvious fill in the blank spots, that's
0: when they mess up. That's really That's really funny when it happens.
1: Yeah, but you know, you'll get a note, or you know, some person is reaching out over LinkedIn. You know, they never looked at your profile. So, you know, why did they do that? Because they're playing a numbers game. But my question is, are they really prepared to to play that game? The way you win at that game, and I think in a lot of cases, no. They haven't really thought that through. They haven't really thought about the negative cost um, that they're generating uh, and the damage they're doing to their reputation. And and um, you'll see this kind of behavior sometimes with people who get involved in multi-level marketing things. And there is a way to do multi-level marketing where you can make money, but a lot of it has to do with onboarding other people to your multi-level marketing. And the thing is, as soon as you start talking about multi-level marketing, whatever the brand is, um, a lot of folks are going to put you know, corks in their ears because they, they're shut down to anything else beyond that in the message. And so what happens is a lot of folks, they reach out to the friends and family because they know they'll listen to them. They run through those people very fast, may or may not sign any of them up, but then they don't know how to get a stranger on board. And if you can't get strangers on board and in your circle, I don't care what the MLM is, then you got to make the money on selling products and none of them are built to monetize well that way. Um, But you've also, you know, you're also building this like layer Uh, around you where people don't want to interact with you because they know they're going to get that
0: pitch. Which really puts you in a a difficult spot moving forward. If you give up on that and you do try to do something that's more genuine because you've already sort of painted yourself with this brush of a particular quality. And that's sort of, you're stuck with the impression that that made on a lot of people.
1: So it's like approach that stuff with caution and don't start with your friends, start with strangers Because you want to learn those lessons with people that, you know, you're not as likely to run into again, that you're going to need to be able to get anyway.
0: That's a really interesting point. Whatever you're doing, I feel like you have to be more concerned with the value you provide to others than you are with the money that you make off of it. If you're getting into something because you want to make a quick buck, then maybe you should get into flipping stuff on eBay or right. You know, drop shipping or something like that. That's more conducive to the transactional nature of it, but trying to squeeze money out of people quickly just doesn't work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so that, uh, you know, there's a long answer to, you know, what some of that creative more consulting type work is, is, helping take a holistic look at what that person's business and, and how does that align to them as a person and what they want to do. And uh, in going through that process, I I think it can really clarify, but you know, someone has to be kind of ready to go through it um, and understand that the answer might be, sorry, but you got to turn the ship. And turning the ship means churn. It means maybe things get a little slower before they speed up again. Um, you know, you don't turn a luxury liner on a dime. It's it's a big process and it creates a big churn. Uh, but if you're heading in the wrong direction for for whatever it is that's your motivator for your you know whether it's business success or personal happiness or whatever, if you're got that all of your machine moving hard in one direction and it's not the right direction, it's more than likely going to be tough to make that turn and business will probably go down and there'll be things you have to compensate, but then you will start to pick up steam in that better direction and you'll be heading towards where
0: you want to go. I feel like that happens with people and friendships and relationships too, You know, where you might realize you have picked something to do with your life that's not the right thing for you and then when you change you start to get churn in your friendships and you know people don't really know what to make of you or people drift away or sometimes sometimes it's for worse but a lot of the times if you're consciously thinking about it it's an improvement because you're more mindful of the people that you have around you
1: yeah yeah and I, I think also I'm, I'm a big believer in context you know, context is the real driver of meaning. Um, I've, I've said this before in my lectures, you know, let's, let's take a bottle of water and sell it on the corner, um, in the grocery store and it's a buck and I take it to the festival at Piedmont Park and I'll sell it for three bucks because I got a captive audience and I move it to the convenience store that happens to be at the, uh, Last gas station before you cross the Death Valley, and it's, you know, eight bucks a bottle. And I set up my water stand on the moon, and it's a million-dollar bottle of water. (laughs) H2O in every case. It's the same thing. So there's nothing intrinsic there that's changing the value except the context. And there are different business models for each of those contexts if I'm good at supply chain and logistics, I'll sell that bottle in the grocery store. You know, Hey, I get a great, um, you you know, uh, revenue for every bottle I sell on the moon, but where's my customer traffic? It's not there. It's hard to hard to find a sweet spot, (laughs) you know? So, when people look at a business, they sometimes forget to look at, well, what does that business require to do successfully? You know, they, they look at a part of it, but they don't look through from a holistic perspective. Okay. We've got the product, but does that mean the product works with that customer? What is that customer willing to buy? What are their comfortables? What do they understand about the market? How are we going to supply them? What are we going to do if this is successful? Um, does it scale? Does it not scale? You know, um, so people sometimes they come up with a service idea or a product idea, um, but they're not really paying attention. They're only thinking about, well, this was like a cool application of technology, but not really about like who does it really help and who cares and does it help enough to be worth the pain of switching to it?
0: Yeah. That's directly connected to, in what way do people value this or not value it? And value is pretty much the thing that determines how successful you can be doing anything. And
1: so, you know, how do we affect value? Well, it's tough unless we have the ability to affect context.
0: And you either choose to do the thing that makes money and you're passionate about that, or if you are trying to do something that's fun that maybe maybe it's not a great idea to try to turn it into a business. Like, how do you find something that can fund that dream and make it possible without trying to put the burden of paying the bills upon the thing that you're passionate about, that you know you're passionate about?
1: Well, that's the thing. Is like a business, you know, Coca-Cola can come up with a product idea, focus group it, and even if they're not, like well-equipped to uh, make it right now, they can throw money at the resources to align that. If you're an individual making your way in the world, you can't focus group things and then throw all resources at what the market's telling you. So you have to kind of look more internally, like, what am I prepared to do? What am I capable of doing? Which are my priorities as I consume my limited time in this world? towards something I, I have my own particular blend of what makes me happy. You know, money's on the list for everyone somewhere, but is it, it's, it's not necessarily their top driver. You know, it might be power. It might be knowledge. It might be curiosity. It might be utility, you know, feeling useful. Um, Everyone's got their own mix. And if you're not responsive to that, your machine's going to break down. You know, you can, you can amp up periodically to make a hard push like, Oh, I'm really going to try and hit some sales numbers this month. So I'm going to make a lot of calls and I'm going to do that. But if you're not that person who loves making those calls, you're not going to sustain it. So building a business around that being how the business works It's going to be a tough business for you because you're going to be miserable. So you either got to find someone else to do that job or figure out a different way to drive customers than cold calling because you're making yourself unhappy. Now, if you're the kind of person who loves calling new people and great at winning them over and you're energized by that, then by all means build the
0: business model around that. Sometimes it's a matter of just finding a new way of doing it that's compatible with the way you think. Like I've sent a lot of emails that were just instead of cold emailing people, you know, hello, this is who I am, this is what I do, do you want to buy it or do you want to get on a call? It's like I'll think of it in terms of you know, I'll look at what they're doing already and say, well, you know, here's here's a list of 15 things that I thought of immediately when I looked at your stuff that you could be like turning that into or doing to expand upon that. And it's like, then it's less cold calling and more just a form of curiosity because curiosity is one of my drivers, much more than the idea of money. So I get way more excited about the possibility of exploring my ideas with them and coincidentally getting paid for the value.
1: That curiosity is your, you know, if that's your juice, then build things on that engine, not on, you know, bottom line things or, you know, how many people report to me or, you know what I'm saying? It, it, it's like, you gotta figure out what is that part that gets you enthused because as any small business is going to encounter drudgery that they have to grind through. And what's gonna sustain you through the grind and through the hard times are the parts that you're passionate about, not the parts that you're compelled to do. Absolutely. That's the gist of what I'm trying to get at. But if, if you don't do the work to try and understand that, it's it's going to be, um, you know, an uphill battle.
0: For sure. What do you feel like is your big picture or your big thesis or your mission statement for what you want your life to be all about?
1: Well, You know, it's funny because it's a blend of things, but I think it comes down to, I'd like to feel that the people I've touched, whether it's through my art or through this type of like coaching consulting work, that it helps them become their better self or a little closer to whatever that is. That, you know, maybe something in my work inspires them in, in, say in the artwork to feel, you know, a little more open to new ideas or reminding them to take some time out to be a little silly and that's okay. And that may maybe makes them a better person in a, in a more open way, or maybe through uh, working with them, we uncover something about what drives them that clicks and, and it, I mean, what, what's the most rewarding when I've done some of this work, and I'll go back to that photographer, is once we found some of those items that really connected with him and made sense, he was off to the races. You know, you could see it in his face that that click had happened, and he was no longer in that mode of, I feel stuck, you know, I feel torn about which way to go and indecisive he's like, I know how to do this now. And I love that. And and that I helped him get there to me, that excites me. Um, So, you know, in, in terms of what I want the end product of me being on this earth is that I've helped people kind of like get to those points. Um, And you know, then I feel like I, 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 You know, I wasn't just a waste of space.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you are here on this earth. You're certainly not a waste of space. And this has been a really great conversation. So thank you so much for taking some time. Do you want to tell everybody where they can find you all over the internet?
1: Yeah, uh, I would love to do that. And I try to make it as easy as possible. Um, So uh, I have davidscohen.com. So if you're a name person, you can do that. I have doodleslice.com, and that's doodle-like drawing and slice-like pizza, which happen to be two of my favorite things. <laughs> I am also doodleslice on Instagram and doodleslice on Twitter, and I have a doodleslice page on Facebook. Um, the book is called Color Me with Hugs. It's under the uh, name Doodle Slice. So if you go to Amazon, uh, it's just search Doodle Slice; it'll come right up. I also have colormewithhugs.com, and uh, if you type in com slash book, it'll take you right to the Amazon page. So I'm trying to make myself findable.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk today. It's been really nice.
1: Thank you, sir. It was an absolute pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.